You are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC 105.3 FM Troy, WOOS 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOA 106.9 FM Albany, and WCAA 107.3 FM Albany, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Listen online at mediasanctuary.org. And welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Victor. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we'll start with Blaze Bryant exploring how Governor Hochul's budget priorities will affect disabled folks. Then in time to gear up for the spring, we'll hear from Allison Joseph, founder of the local chapter of Black Girls Do Cycle, about promoting diversity in cycling, where to buy a bike, and more. Later on, Hugh Johnson joins us to talk about what's going on with this crazy warm weather we've been having. After that, one of Hudson Mohawk Magazine's weekly co-hosts is here in her other function as an artist to reflect on writing music about trauma and loss and about Black Lives Matter. Finally, continuing the theme of music, we hear about the Black Legacy Project and about music in common, groups that strengthen, empower, and connect communities through the universal language of music. But first, here are the headlines. A new charter school for high school students interested in health care has opened in Rensselaer. The launch of the school has been slower than expected, with only 50 students in the first-year class. All of the students wear scrubs as a school uniform, and they're held to higher expectations, similar to a college environment. In other education news, according to the Daily Gazette, in the continuing rebranding of SUNY schools, Fulton Montgomery Community College will now be called SUNY Fulton Montgomery, an admissions officer at Hudson Valley Community College, however, confirmed that the school will not be changing its name and is still Hudson Valley Community College. Maggie Scannell of Wine and Skill, in her third year of playing for the United States Under-18 women hockey team in international competition, led her team to a gold medal as captain of the 2024 World Championship in Switzerland. Voters in the East Greenbush School District are likely to be asked to vote in May on whether or not to approve a $116 million bond issue to upgrade all seven of the district's schools. The district expects no impact on district property taxes as they will receive significant state funding. That's it for the headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390.
And now to our first story. My former co-host, Blaze Bryant, is back. He interviewed Alex Thompson, Director of Advocacy with the New York Association on Independent Living, and Julia Batista, Policy Associate with Consumer Directed Action of New York, with an overview of budget priorities impacting people with disabilities in New York State. Give us the sense, and Alex, I want to start with you on this. What are some of the biggest issues that the New York Association on Independent Living is trying to tackle in terms of the budget? Well, Blaze, I think one of the big um, you know, barriers that we're facing this budget year uh, is connected to the Medicaid program. Um, you know, in New York, we've, for many years now, um, Medicaid uh, is basically the, the one-stop shop for people that need uh, long-term care. And uh, unfortunately, the Medicaid program also exists under this thing called the Medicaid Global Cap, you know, which keeps uh, downward pressure on Medicaid spending. Um, and unfortunately, you know, with the, the growing aging population and, you know, we have people with disabilities in New York, there's this, this ongoing pressure um, to reduce spending on long-term care, um, which uh, just keeps being problematic. We keep seeing cuts uh, across the board related to long-term care. And that's, you know, in a difficult budget year like like this year uh, is, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more of these cuts. So that's something that we're going to be uh, continuing to fight against um, this budget year. And, you know, not a great budget year overall, but particularly for our population, people that need, um, you know, long-term care to stay out in the community. This is This is a real challenge. For sure. And it's thankfully not as bad of a budget year as we were told a few months ago. Julia, talk about this from the Consumer Directed Action of New York or Danny's side of things. Well, we certainly have um, a few major concerns of this budget. Um, primarily, I would say the wage parity cuts for workers downstate. And if you're not familiar with wage parity, it's a mix of compensation and benefits um, for workers in New York City, Long Island, and Westchester. This is something that was created in 2012, and CDPA wasn't included in until 2017. During that time, um, sometimes unscrupulous actors would inappropriately place traditional home care consumers into the CDPA program and make it a CDPA case in name only, in which um, agencies would inappropriately act in the role of a consumer, take on the responsibilities that consumers are legally supposed to take. And sometimes the consumer themselves didn't even know that they had been switched. So because this was happening specifically, um, CDPA was included in 2017. Now, in last year's budget, um, I guess I should say the, the state budget for 2024 that was passed last year, um, there was a cut to wage parity of $1.55. Now, wage parity for New York City is slightly higher than in Long Island and Westchester, but in both cases, the cuts amounted to $1.55. And those cuts took place January 1st, 2024, which is the same day that statewide home care workers were um, getting $1.55 wage increase. That was part of the incremental wages that had been passed in the 2022 budget. Um, so this all gets a little complicated with who's getting wage increases, who's getting wage cuts, but the bottom line is the workers that were included in wage parity saw no increase due to the fact that their wage parity rates were cut 
And it was only applied to CDPA. I'd like to add traditional home care workers did not see their wage parity um, impacted whatsoever. Now, this year, they want to cut it altogether, and that would bring workers downstate to the lowest wages since, uh, I think, pre-2020 levels, in fact, which, as many of you are aware, um, prices have not been going down on consumer goods or like the cost of living, quite the opposite, and at a inflation rate that is um, notable. And so to reduce the wages for a workforce that is predominantly women of color, um, a majority of whom are immigrants as well, is doing nothing positive for equity. It's also going to be very impactful to the people who hire personal assistants. We're already in the midst of a nationwide workforce crisis in which New York leads. This is only going to drive um, more and more of the workforce into other sectors that have more competitive pay and discourage those who might have considered entering the workforce from doing so in the first place. Absolutely. She's Julia Batista. He's Alex Thompson there with me, Blaze Bryant, here on the Blaze and Access podcast. Now, both of you talked about and alluded to, to a degree, the governor's master plan on aging and disability. Now, as she signed this executive order, and then you see what's coming out of the budget. How do these things line up? And how is no one really, except for the disability community, really calling her out on this? I think that this is incompatible, certainly, with the master plan on aging. I don't know many of the specific details, but I know that you know the governor and the budget director have both acknowledged the fact that New York is aging rapidly. And in fact, those over the age of 60 are the fastest growing demographic in New York state. So something needs to be addressed. And while I think the intention is to save money so that more services can be provided because that will be necessary, um, this is going to only reduce service access. For sure. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think, you know, as Julia said, there's a lot of macroeconomic issues around inflation, cost of living. Um, and then, you know, there's also a legacy issue of, you know, we had the Cuomo administration for many years where we were seeing no growth in, you know, wages and support for um, for home care and supports for people to live in the community. Um, and now, you know, we're we're making, a, you know, we made a little bit of progress maybe in the past two years, but you know, now we're facing cuts basically in, in long-term care, which is unreasonable as we have a, like you said, we have an aging population that needs to be part of a plan that includes funding. I think one of the, the big issues with this master plan is we don't really know um, how that connects to, uh, to budget. For sure. I'm going to tee this up for Alex and then you, Julia. Why is it that consumer-directed personal assistance and home care in general seems to be the bully pulpit for so many cuts, yet it was home care workers who proved during the pandemic, which we've known all along as people who work in this space, how essential they truly are. One of the kind of narratives that we keep hearing is growth in the program, right? So the state is seeing how popular uh, consumer-directed uh, assistance is. They're seeing kind of growth in, 
you know, people want to be able to choose who is providing them assistance with some very, you know, intimate care in some cases. Um, you know, you these are people that are working in your home. They're they're really, you know, it, it's a very personal thing. And I think, you know, being able to choose who is providing assistance to you is very um, is very important. And now, the other part of that is that um, because of the stagnation wages, a lot of people were not able to get care through traditional, um, you know, agency systems or other, um, you know, support um, providers. So, you know, that's another component of where we've seen gr growth in the, the CDPA program is there's a little more flexibility in terms of, you know, you are recruiting um, people to work for you. And so, of course, there's going to be growth in a program like that that is very successful, um, that has helped people um, get the care workers that they need. Um, the state seeing that growth, and now they're saying, well, this is, you know, unreasonable growth in the program. Um, but that's also amidst, you know, a large aging population and, you know, people with disabilities that are um, seeking this program out because they can actually get the, the care that they need to stay in the community. Right. And it. Alex, to your point, it really is an attitudinal thing, isn't it? Because here we saw over 15,000 people in New York State alone die in nursing homes from COVID, yet let's cut the home care programs and keep giving money to the nursing homes. Yeah, I, there's statistics. I mean, the majority of people would like to age in place uh, and stay in their homes. And so, of course, this is going to be a popular program. Right. Uh, Julia, uh, give us your perspective you know, to kind of add on to that, I think that there is a pervasive attitude that really precedes this administration, that um, this is something that family members should be providing for free. And this is something that we've had to push back on for a long time. I mean, you can really go on about all of the inequities of women in the workforce and the expectations of them to also provide unpaid care to multiple generations of family. And the reality is you can't, many times, unfortunately, um, people do not have these supports um, informally, or if they do, it's something that is impossible to um, maintain. And if you can't pay a workforce enough money, there's going to be no one to provide them whatsoever, paid or unpaid, and people will wind up in institutions. And I think that we have despite the platitudes, really had an institutional bias um, in the state. And I was hopeful that this new administration would try to move past that. I think that the temporary savings that they're presented with can be seductive. Um, we find that in the long term, and not even the, the so far long term, um, it winds up costing us more to keep people in, in institutions and to um, not provide preventative care through personal care. So. I think it's a, like you said, a problem with attitude and also um, a problem with kind of kicking the can down the road as far as um, the accrued costs. In case you are just tuning in, that was Hudson Mohawk Magazine producer Blaze Bryant exploring how New York State spending policies are affecting people with disabilities who need long-term care. Thank you, Blaze. With this warm weather, some people's thoughts may be turning to biking. Allison Joseph, founder of the local chapter of the national organization Black Girls Do Cycle, talks about diversity in cycling, cycling events, routes and paths, and where to find a bike 
in the Capital Region. Here she speaks with Hudson Mohawk Magazine's correspondent, Andrea Cunliffe. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today we're talking to an amazing woman called Allison Joseph. She's done some pretty spectacular things recently. In fact, even hit the pages of the Times Union. Give me a little bit about who you are. Sure. So I am, you know, originally from South America, from Guyana, South America. And I've been in the United States since I was 13 years old. Been living in the capital region. I believe I was about 18 or 19 when I came to the capital region. And this has been home for me ever since. Um, and I, I think I'm probably going to retire and, get, and grow old here. Plan on leaving. I'm hooked in the capital region. Well, what are you doing? You're doing something that's really interesting called Black Girls Do Ride. Black Girls Do Ride uh, is an organization that was founded by Monica Garrison out in Pittsburgh. I like to ride. Uh, coming from Guyana, uh, in Guyana and in a lot, a lot of parts of the world like Guyana, cycling was a part of a regular part of everyday transportation. It wasn't something that you necessarily did for fun. It was just transportation. But moving to the United States, it just didn't allow for that. One, it didn't allow for um, cycling for anyone, because if you know anything about New York City and Brooklyn, the streets, especially in the 80s, um, it just was not conducive to cycling. Uh, so I did not pick up cycling again until I started visiting my aunt in Canada. And so I got an old bike and I put it together and I got on that bike and I started um, riding and doing wheelies with the kids in the neighborhood. And I have to tell you, I enjoyed it. It was one of those things in my teenage years that really brought me joy. Is that what you're encouraging now? Are people to get out and get on their bicycles? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I am encouraging women. I'm encouraging all women to get out there and get on their on their bicycles, whether it's for um, whether it's for pleasure, whether um, it's for alternative transportation. And the capital region is changing. When I first moved to the area, it really wasn't that conducive to cycling, but. The capital region is changing. We're having more um, bike lanes, more trails and things like that. Um, it's definitely changing, but we still need a lot more change. I think that women need to feel more safe and secure as, you know, as they're out there uh, cycling. And drivers need to be more aware of, 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 of women on, uh, on bicycles. Troy is quite challenging at times, uh, yeah. especially if you want to cross the river. Do you find that there are certain pathways that are more conducive for cycling? Do you choose where you're going by the way of where the cycle paths are, or do you just go? When, I'm, when we're doing group rides, I tend to choose the, the easier rides, the easier trails, because our ladies are at different levels. Yeah, so we usually start off the trail in Waterville and get to uh, the Corner Preserve in Albany. We do that trail often. We've done rides from Troy into Cahols as well. You organize people to come and ride with you? Within the Black Girls Dubai Capital Region Group, we do have an events page. And so we have planned um, rides that we organize, group rides that we organize. 
also some of the women write on their own and when they write on their own they will post it in a group hey you know i'm going to be writing this afternoon or i'm going to be writing tomorrow does anyone want to write with me and so we just kind of put it out there so women get together either on their own or get together you know with two or three other women and they write together do you have like a Facebook page or a website or Instagram or Twitter? How do you communicate we, with everyone? We do We do have a Facebook group page. It's a private page for the members only. So that's mainly how we communicate for our local group here. There's a larger face, uh, Facebook group and um, Facebook page and website for Black Girls Do Bike, the national organization. So, but we do have our local group here. If somebody would like to join you, how would they do that? They can find us on uh, Facebook, Black Girls Do Buy Capital Region New York, and you just click on like, and of course I will accept them. And you, you know, Black Girls Do Bike is open to all women. It's a women's only group, and it's open to all women, regardless of uh, race, size, or our writing level. Perfect. That's great. You've got me enthusiastic. What are the benefits of riding a bicycle? I mean, how do you feel that it benefits you or it benefits the individual to get out and get on a bicycle and, and go somewhere? Uh, whether you go to the market or you go visit a friend or you go to the farmer's market down on the, right. on the riverfront or wherever. Well, it's a physical and a mental thing. And, you know, because for me personally, I get on a bike and it's a sense of freedom. I feel a sense of freedom and empowerment. For me, it's a form of self-care. For someone else, it may be just alternative transportation, you know, um, rather than getting in the car and wasting gas or it's their way of being kinder to the environment. Everyone has their own reason for riding a bicycle. Uh, so we have a group ride coming up this Monday. Uh, so it's every other Monday and then every other uh, Saturday. Uh, we're working to try to get a, another day in the week there just to be able to accommodate everyone's schedule. How many women in Troy are part of this group? So the group currently has, uh, at last count, we have 87 women in our group. Now, I'll be honest, we don't, I, I haven't had 87 people show up on a ride yet, but it's my goal. It's my goal. And um, as a matter of fact, this Sunday, we're having our first Zoom social for the year. We try to do, you know, ever since I started, I've been doing this annual social just to kind of meet and greet. So we're going to have our first Zoom social for this year, this Sunday. So that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about and working on, trying to figure out how can we get more women out on their bikes? How can we, you know, get 87 of these women? out on a ride. We have one big ride that's coming up. It's supposed to be a virtual ride um, with Tour de Cure, Capital Region. Yeah, that's a ride that we were, we were planning on joining. However, now it's going to be virtual. So we're trying to figure out, you know, if we're going to do a group ride, where would be the best place to go? So we're still working on that, but that is a ride that's coming up soon. So everyone wears a helmet. And do you all have to wear masks or are you far enough apart or is that there's enough space or do you have a mask in case you need it or? Uh, absolutely. We do wear, we do wear masks. We encourage everyone to wear masks, especially if social distancing is not, if they're not able to keep social distancing. But when we're doing our rides, most of the time we are able to have social distancing, but some women find that it's difficult for them to ride with the mask, especially if we're going to do more than five miles. 
it becomes a little difficult. What can we do as a community to help nurture this kind of a exercise b transport right and see there's such a feeling of independence that you're not dependent on someone or something you can just go somewhere right i think i you know i've been thinking about this you know this is one of the things that we're going to be talking about on sunday is like how can we get more girls in the community to want to ride to you know to experience this you know and i i believe that the more we have images of women and girls out there that young girls can relate to, uh, women that looks like them, more the more images we have out there of women cycling, the more interested girls and, and, and other women will be. Not everybody has a bicycle at this point. Maybe there's a right. lot of people that would want a bicycle. There's right. the bicycle, what's it called? The bicycle people who re build bicycles and distribute Troy them. Bike Rescue? That's it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Troy Bike Rescue, they're they're awesome down there. Um, so yeah, you can get bikes, you know, because people donate bikes there all the time. I know I've donated um, bikes. They have bikes, like I said, there's the Troy Bike Rescue um, that people can go to, you know, to, to, to get a bike and see how they're able to help them. A lot of times, down there at Troy Bike Rescue too. It's not just being able to get a bike, but sometimes people have an old bike or something and they can help them fix that bike. Super place. So we should all get onto Facebook and like Black Girls Do Ride. Is there yes. a, a, a Facebook page specifically for the Capital Region? Yes, it's, yes, Black Girls Do Ride Capital Region, New York. Oh, brilliant. So that's how we'll all connect. And yes. I thank you for your time. Thank you for your effort. And uh, keep riding. Thank you. We will. And thank you for having me on. This piece from our archives has Hudson Mohawk magazine producer Andrea Cunliffe talking with Allison Joseph of Black Girls Do Bike. For more information, visit the National Black Girls Do Bike website at blackgirls.com dobike.org or email the local chapter at blackgirlsdobiketroynewyork at gmail.com And that's blackgirlsdobiketroyny at gmail.com You little less typing. Thank you, For those Bria. just tuning in, I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Victor. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content or even helping create our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now back to join us for our weekly chat is retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson. Hugh, I understand today is... National Meteorologists Day. Hope you're celebrating safely. Thanks for joining us while you're on vacation in Hilton Head. How's the weather down there? Yes, 
here I am. Yes. Uh, we're having a nor'easter. <laughs> not the greatest. Uh, not the, in fact, in some ways, it's better in Albany than it is down here. We had, we had a real rock and roll in nor'easter last night with thunderstorms, windswept rain, the whole the whole gauntlet. And today, just cloudy, but then rain kind of. It's still the storm is still kind of circulating off the shore there and bringing one more band of rain in before it pulls out tomorrow. Better tomorrow, but it's going to be windy and cool for this time of year. But this is typical of an El Nino winter. El Nino winter, you usually are cool and stormy in the southeast. Yep. So at least you're not getting the rain that they're getting in Southern California. And we finally got some sunshine over the weekend after a lot of cloudy, dreary, gray days before that. What's going on? Well, it, it, a couple of things going on there, Bria. Um, we had a lot less Arctic air. And a lot of times in January, we have Arctic air. We get those relatively sunny days, but very cold. But we had none of that. Um, El Nino plays a part of that. We have uh, very, a lot of moisture, a very active southern jet stream, very convoluted jet stream between that and the polar jet stream. But right now, we're, we're actually seeing more El Nino characteristics than we see most of the winter getting slammed, as you mentioned, in Southern California with uh, probably will be a, a billion-dollar, or first billion-dollar weather disaster of the year, all kinds of flooding out there. And, uh, yeah, and, and the reason why, and another thing is with clouds, I, I've said this all along, with climate change, we're probably going to see more. Why? Because we have more moisture, more moisture bruised clouds. And I think that will especially be true in the winter. And I think that's, that's why our minimum temperatures have gone up six, seven degrees since 1970, it's a lot of that is because of increased cloudiness at night, which temperatures don't drop. We had lows barely below freezing uh, for many nights in a row in January or February, barely moving the needle on the thermometer. So, unfortunately, I think that's one of our demises of uh, for in our area with uh, climate change. So, I want to go back to something you said. It sounds like the cold air helps with with sunny days. Did I hear that right? Well, the Arctic, yeah. yeah. What happens is the Arctic air generally holds less moisture when you get the, like a north north huh. uh, and you skip and you, and you can you miss the, the trajectory of the lakes. Now, the Great Lakes play a factor. If they're, un, if they're unfrozen, they can throw a lot of clouds. But if you get a straight north northwesterly wind, get pure Arctic air, and the air is very, has very little moisture in it and will likely have and because of that, we'll have more sunshine. And if you look at the, some of our coldest outbreaks, you can almost always see it's sunny. It's sunny and very cold. So that, and that's very typical with very strong Arctic air masses, especially once the lakes freezes, which they haven't this year because it's been so mild. But in a typical old-fashioned winter, you freeze the lakes, then you don't have to worry so much about lake moisture anymore. And then you're rocking and rolling with a lot of sun, even though you're cold. But that's not happening this year, not at all. <laughs> What else has been happening around the globe this winter, Hugh? Oh, it's been a lot of stuff going on. So we have the rains in California. Uh, we, we do have epic snow up in Nova Scotia. They had a huge storm, and they produce anywhere officially over a meter, over a yard of snow. And most of that fell in a 24-hour period. And some places got even more than that when with drifting and so forth. It was just uh, Cape Breton was the worst storm since 2004. Uh, there was a terrible snow back in about 10 years ago, but I guess that missed Nova Scotia. It went a little further south, but they got Nova Scotia just got hammered. Uh, they've been getting uh, back. And on the southern hemisphere, let's not forget our poor folks in Chile. They're having horrible forest fires as a result of searing heat and drought 
And uh, it's been a horrible thing with hundreds of people missing, presumed dead, thousands of houses destroyed. Again, probably a climate change signature, unfortunately. And uh, let's see what else is going on. Well, down here, like I said, not too great. Uh, we've been a little chilly, but the rain, as Bria said, nothing like Southern California. But boy, last night for a few hours, it was coming down at, at pretty incredible rates, but it didn't last as long, thank goodness. So, and let me see what else is. It's just been, it's been a really, oh, up in Anchorage, up, up in Alaska, beginning hammered. Juno, 75 inches of snow in January. Their normal snowfall seasonal snowfall is about like ours is. It's about 65 inches. They got that in one month. They got more than that. They got slammed. Anchorage has had over 100 inches, and they, their season isn't over yet. They have a shot breaking their all-time record. So it's been a very, very active winter indeed uh, with a lot of snow, but not here, not in Albany, because we've just been too warm. We've had a lot. We had a very wet January, but a lot of that fell as rain. So in Anchorage, they got 100 inches just in January or in the season? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Let me, let me clarify that for the season since uh, October. They have 35 inches on the ground right now. But for the total season, they have 104.3. And that was a day or two ago. They might have actually picked up a couple inches then. then then the air has been cold air has been locked into place because the polar vortex, which did break a little bit loose in January, has retightened up and has stuck up in up in the northern latitudes. But I definitely see a change coming with that. I think it's going to split into two. We're going to finally get some colder air in here next week, not this week. This week's going to be pretty mild, but next week uh, I think we're going to finally get a, some uh, some a chill down, especially later next week. What about a more complete forecast for the rest of the week, or maybe even longer? Yes, absolutely. Um, enjoy this week. It's going to be tranquil. Temperatures 30s, uh, mid-upper 30s tomorrow, and then warming into the 40s as we go later in the week, and touching 50 or better on Saturday ahead of a cold front, which will bring just a few showers. So we're going to be staying pretty dry. Behind that, it turns a little chillier, and then we'll watch the storm for around right, uh, about a week from now. It, it's hard. It, it, it's, I'm not sure which way it's going to go yet, but it could bring rain or snow, probably rain. But behind that storm, that's when the colder air will start coming in. And I think it will stay right through uh, for another week or two. And that's when we'll have to watch to see if there's a chance of getting a snowstorm. So we're talking pres beyond President's Day week at that point. So it looks like this first half of February, a little bit above normal temperatures. The second half could actually be a little bit below. So we'll see how that goes. So I have an unusual question for you, Hugh. I'd love sure. having the chance to ask you anything. Go for Why it. is there a meteor in meteorologist? Because it talks about the sky. It talks about the sky. Funny story. Many years ago, I went down to the Smithsonian. I asked to see the meteorology department, and they directed me to the meteors, which I enjoyed. But it wasn't what I was looking for. But it's, it's the sky. It's, it's basically it's a Greek word for sky. And, of course, weather comes from the sky when we see rain and clouds and that kind of thing. So that's that's a very good question. Huh. Who knew? Yeah. One well, last thing before you... I let you go. One... Oh. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Speaking of clouds, next week we're going to – I'd like to talk about how this, uh, there's a model that shows that how clouds – we talked about more clouds with more uh, warming, that that could actually – this one model is, is predicting warmer 
a, war a greater warming than other models for the next 50 years. But we'll talk about that next year. It's very disturbing and something we need to talk about. <laughs> so that model shows that we're in even worse shape than, than was thought? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> So, so get ready um, for next week. <laughs> there, we're sorry, supposed to get a 95% totality uh, eclipse on April 8th. Yep. You what, got do you, it. what do you know about April? Doing a forecast slightly farther away, any chance we'll be able to see the eclipse on April 8th? It's about 50 50. Last year on April 8th was totally sunny. It was a perfectly clear day. So I'm like, oh, oh. But you can't use that. You just got to use it's, – it's about a flip of a coin. It won't be the cloudiest time of year. It will be better than this time of year, better than certainly the fall. Uh, again, the only problem is the lakes probably be warmer than normal, so that might actually increase the chances of a little bit of cloudiness. But I want to emphasize to my uh, folks listening is don't settle for 95%. Head west to see the 100%. I've seen both. There's no comparison. you got to go for the total – and the closest place to see total from Albany is Rome, New York, 100 miles. You'll see it for a few seconds. Uh, if you want to see it longer, go to Rochester, Syracuse, out that way, where it'll be over three minutes long. One of the longest total solar eclipses we can get this time of year, any time of year. And it's the last shot we're going to have it being that close to total eclipse for many, many years in, in my lifetime, for sure. <laughs> being that close well, to I'm Albany, there's to plenty. I'm heading to Buffalo. I figure having survived the, the uh, Christmas storm yeah. last year, I deserve a fun time in Buffalo. Go and there's a close they have, I think, like, over three yeah. minutes of eclipse. Yeah. Go a day early because the throughway could be absolutely mobbed. I would not go in the day of the eclipse because it will. a lot of folks in New York and Long Island, New Jersey, will be heading up that way. It could really be a, a wicked day on the throughway. Okay. Thanks, Hugh. Always great talking with you. You too. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. How do artists process grief and trauma? Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Lavender spoke with Sina Basilahiki about songwriting on themes of Black Lives Matter. It's February 2024. We are heading into Black History Month. And joining me now is Lavender to talk about her Black Lives Matter anthem. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Lavender. Thank you so much. So you pointed out that you had written this anthem, Taylor Floyd. Could you talk about where you were at that moment that brought you to the point of writing this song? So yeah, where I was at that moment actually comes straight from the, from the first verse. I actually wrote this uh, over quite a period of time just because uh, it took me some time to, to get my thoughts out. But um, the first verse starts, proud boys stand by, he said last night, and then I dreamt it was my time. Proud boys stand by, he said last night. I started writing this uh, November 2020. Mm -hmm. And so around that time, uh, a certain person was on, was in the public eye, and um, he said those words, proud boys stand by. I see. You're uh, referring to the former President Trump. That's correct. And then I said, and then I dreamt it was my time. 
screamed out mama just like George did. This is all from the first verse. So I, I had a nightmare uh, that November that I was targeted for, for being black. And around that time also, I was having this conversation with my mom about how George Floyd's story is our story too. And um, even if we haven't been violently attacked, we still face discrimination in all sorts of ways. Um, so that's how it started. Um, and of course, you know, 2020, and then that, the following January, um, the White House um, event happened and it just led to a lot of uh, emotions that went into this song. And the process of writing this and speaking about it with your mother, how were, how were you able to process this this fear and the dream that you were having? Uh, how did this song help you work through that? I really don't know. I mean, I, I feel like um, music has always been my best um, medium of communication and expression. And when I had this dream, I don't know, the words just came to me, the melody just came to me. And... Um, when I was talking to my mom, it wasn't about the song, uh, but just about the time and the election. And my my best friend at the time didn't vote. She she chose not to vote. You know, I took that personally. And um, my mom and I were talking about how people don't realize the importance of of a vote and how these issues. You know, like I said, George Floyd's story is our story too. And the title, Taylor Floyd, you brought up George Floyd. Could you just talk about the significance in coming to that title for you? Absolutely. So Floyd, uh, Taylor, the names Taylor Floyd are taken from the last names of two of just, uh, two of countless Black Americans who were killed, uh, one being George Floyd and the other being Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor was, was shot and killed in the middle of the night and she was asleep in her bed. And, you know, that one uh, resonated with me, too, because it's it's like you could, this could happen at any moment. And then I had this nightmare that I was in, essentially in George Floyd's position. And then I w woke up in the middle of the night and was, you know, obviously scared. So we spoke about you using the process of song creation to help you move through the fear and frustration um, of police brutality and Black Lives Matter. And song is also a, such an important part of movement building and the success of messages. Is the creation of this song for your own processing of what was going on? Do you see your song as part of this movement, as a contribution? Yeah, I think it started as just a way for me to process this this dream that I had and what I was feeling. And then, you know, as I began writing the chorus in the second verse, um, I came to a point where I was like, I, and I need to send a message here and people need to really think about this. Um, so I don't know. I mean, music is very powerful, like you said, and um, I hope that um, this song can help get this message out and 
you know, maybe it will become kind of the significant anthem of the movement. But um, I really just wanted people to take a minute and listen to it and, you know, really think about what they value and what, what they believe in. In addition to being a musician, you also run an organization. How do these two things align for you? Uh, the songs like this are, are what it's all about. Yeah, so the organization is Music for the World. The, the mission is to use music to support various uh, charities and movements across the globe. So the Black Lives Matter movement is a movement, and um, it's an important one. And, of course, this song uh, just inherently supports that movement because of what it's about. Yeah, I, I hope that uh, it does that. So you you began by pointing out to a few of the lyrics could you give us a, uh, a little bit more of an in, um, could you share a few more of the lyrics with us? Absolutely. Um, so the second verse goes, peaceful protests or terrorists, ask and he'll say that depends. Do they want the right to bear arms? Because if they support it, they'll receive no harm. So that's a nod to the um, January, was it the 6th? I don't remember january 6th 6th. you can call it what you want um but uh you know this this speaks to domestic terrorism um and uh gun reform uh you know do they want the right to bear arms and you know the 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 difference between peaceful protests and terrorism and how people view those things especially when race is involved and you know as we've seen um when people of color are involved in any sort of protest. Uh, it's quickly seen as violent, you know, even when it's not. And, um, you know, then then violence ensues. Um, and so it, it speaks to that. And uh, I'm hoping it makes people think about, you know, what do they think is a peaceful protest? And, you know, how do they view these these actions? Lavender, I really appreciate you sharing the process of working on your song, Taylor Floyd, from your album, Quarantine, with us. And I'd just love to um, share your website with our listeners and then also leave any last remarks to you. Absolutely. Um, So to find all of my links, um, you can go to linkhub.musicfortheworld.rocks. There you'll be linked to um, the music and and the organization, everything you could possibly want to know about me and what I do. Um, And as for a final message, um, it is Black History Month. However, these issues are year round. And um, as a person of color, I experience them directly and indirectly, whether people realize it or not, there are a lot of um, these nuances in the way uh, people act towards you, the way they, their body language, their their tone, uh, even if they're not, you know, striking you with a bat, uh, they're still, it's still there. The discrimination is still there. And um, I just want people to consider that more and think about how they can be an ally and pay closer attention and take action. We appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sina. 
Thanks to Sina and, of course, to Lavender for this look at how songwriting and creativity can become ways for building connections and for moving past our traumas and challenges. That website, again, is lavender-mftw.bandcamp.com. Continuing our look at Blacks in Music, Kaylin McPherson spoke with Todd Mack, the founder and director of Music in Common, and Trey Carlisle, the programming coordinator for Black Legacy Project, about what the Black Legacy Project is, about Music in Common, about the importance of exploring where music comes from, and so much more. This, this is Kaylin McPherson reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today I have Todd Mack and Trey Carlisle, co-founders of the Black Legacy Project. So can you uh, just give me a little background of you guys and about the Black Legacy Project? Uh, sure. Um, I am, uh, this is Todd Mack. I am the founder and executive director of Music in Common, which is the nonprofit that produces the Black Legacy Project. And I have the honor of co-directing the project with my man, <laughs> Trey Carlisle, um, and I'm the program coordinator for Music in Common and co-director of the Black Legacy Project. And the Black Legacy Project is a musical celebration of Black history to advance racial solidarity, equity, and belonging. And it's a national project, but it takes place at the local level in communities across the country. And so what we do in a nutshell is we will travel to a community, we will select a theme and two songs centered around race relations. Um, that have direct ties to the local communities. And we will start this week long process where we will have community members discuss these songs, explore how they're still relevant to the state of race relations today. And then we engage local black and white musicians and reimagining these songs, creating present day interpretations of them and co-writing an original song together about how we can move forward and advance greater belonging in the community and in the nation. And then the songs are recorded and performed and showcased for the community. And we highlight the whole experience in a docu-series where people around the world can learn about the Black history in each of these communities we travel to and be inspired to advance belonging in their own communities. Wow, that's very interesting. So it's kind of like you get the whole crowd working together to produce something to help to... You take old songs and you rewrite them and you try to promote racial inequality. Uh, and so it's really cool on how that works. Um, what influences the music you play? In the Black Legacy Project specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for the Black Legacy Project, um, the songs that we select, um, they all are really centered around, you know, they have a powerful message around um, race relations, racial injustice, but also, you know, equality and freedom and belonging. Um, so all of, we take songs from the past and present that all speak to um, the need for advancing greater belonging, healing and equity across racial divides. Um, and also we select, um, the songs that have direct ties to the local communities that we go to and the theme we focus on. So, you know, when we traveled to um, the Berkshires, the theme was, you know, hope in a hateful world. So we chose songs like Lift Every Voice and Sing, Strange Fruit, um, We Shall Overcome, 
songs that all have direct ties to the local community, but also speak to this general theme of how can we build a world where hate no longer exists. So is it is it one big band or how many um, people are uh, producing the music and, and working together to produce beautiful music? Yeah, well, it kind of varies with each community that the that the project travels to, but it always starts with four musical co-directors. And um, and then typically it could be anywhere from an additional four or five to a dozen or two additional musicians helping on the recording sessions and on the performances of the songs. So they're musicians. All local. All, all local. local from, yeah, that's what I was about to ask. Yeah. They're all from the local area. Well, that's exactly. cool. Yeah. Uh, so, so then you even get local artists to come and sing. And exactly and that that's sort of the whole the whole uh the whole point of the project is to really localize it on every level so certainly starting with musicians but also even the the community partners are generally local nonprofit organizations colleges high schools uh different various community stakeholders that are embedded in the community and the point of it is to embed the project in the community and being that uh, we don't live in each of the communities that we go to, uh, it's really important to sort of uh, create those partnerships, both with musicians and non-musicians, so that the project can continue to grow after after we're not there. So with the project, what do you hope people get out of what what you intend to do with the project? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so we hope the project um, can inspire future conversations and future collaborations among community members, musicians and non-musicians alike, around what can they do to help advance greater belonging, greater equity, greater solidarity in their local community and across the nation. And we seek for the Black LP to be a platform to inspire those type of conversations and collaborations that are necessary. Um, and we feel that music being a universal language um, is a powerful tool to be able to help bring people across divides to have these important conversations and to build empathy towards each other and start working together. Definitely music is a universal language. It brings people from all backgrounds, no matter what. I, I agree with you there. I think that everything that uh, Treasure shared, though, has to start with, um, I mean, I, I see that as sort of step two. Step one is that um, really the the hope and the objective of the project is to deepen understanding around the complexity of of a lot of these uh, issues and the complexity of black and white race relations in the United States and the historical complexities of that as well. And from that, I think constructive conversations can ensue, but you really, it's got to start with just elevating the awareness and deepening the understanding. Right, definitely. It, that's definitely true. You need to elevate people's awareness, you know, get the word out there. You know, that's the first yeah. step. So for people who've never heard your music, what type of music do you play? Is it blues? Is it jazz? Is it rock? Is it metal? Is it pop, hip hop? Yes. All of that. <laughs> so in, in every when we travel to every community and we engage the local um, musical co-directors in reimagining these songs and co-writing an original, they all bring their unique 
um, musical genres, musical styles, musical strengths to how they reimagine these songs. Um, so as a result, we have had, you know, blues songs, jazz renditions, folk songs, or rock songs, gospel, funk um, stylings, um, all around, you know, all as reinterpretations, like modern day interpretations of some historic songs that a lot of people may know about, like Lift Every Voice and Sing, like We Shall Overcome, like Strange Fruit, or songs that not as many people might know about, like The Ballad of the Walking Postman, or What is the Color of the Soul of a Man? All of these have been powerful songs written throughout history about how can we build bridges across racial divides and advance a world of equity. So it's been beautiful to see the artists bring there a lot of these um, diverse musical genres and how they reimagine these songs and, and co-writing original anthems for change. With those um, original anthems, is it just the artist writing them or do they get the crowd involved or... You know, how does that work? Yeah, it's just the musical co-directors that that write the songs. So but it is four musicians writing one song together. So that's always an interesting process. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Yeah. Oh, it, it probably is interested in what they come up with, too, as well. Sure. Yeah. So, much so. it's a beautiful collaborative process that they engage in. Um, so how do you get artists involved with the project? You know, how do you reach out and find these artists? Yeah, so depending on where we are uh, working, if it's a place that we've been to before or have some inroads with local musicians, we might start there. Um, and if it's a place that we've never been to before, either way, uh, we do a, a, a considerable amount of just research into the local music scene. Uh, using social media, using various music sites uh, to try to identify uh, who the various musicians are in the scene. And then we just literally reach out to them one-on-one -on -one as we um, sort of identify who we think would be great for the project. With one minute to go, is there anything else you'd like to say that I didn't ask? And also, where can more people find information? Yes. So you can learn more about us by going to... Um, our website, theblacklegacyproject.org, uh, as well as musicincommon.org. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us on both platforms at The Black Legacy Project and Music in Common. And I will add that our first album will be out in uh, late April, so be on the lookout for that. This has been Kayla McPherson reporting for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. I've been talking with Todd Mack and Trey Carlisle, co-founders of the Black Legacy Project. Thank you for talking with me today. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks to Kayla McPherson for that interview. And those websites again are musicincommon.org and theblacklegacyproject.org. That was a archive interview, but we thought it went nicely with the piece before it, so we brought it back. That's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Victor Max Valentine. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer for this episode is the incredible Captain Kaylin McPherson. We thank all of the volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley edited headlines, plus Blaze Bryant, Cena Bazila Hickey, Andrea Cunliffe, and Kaylin McPherson each produced a segment. This is all a team effort, and we welcome you to our team. Tune in each weekday 
at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories <coughs> sorry, are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. Thank you.